One of the ways that we worship together, uh, we worship in song, we worship in word, but one of the ways we worship together that I think we sometimes overlook is the celebration of what God is doing and has done through people who are among us that we think are models of Christian love and service. We have two of those celebration moments to do today, two acts of worship in which we can give praise to God for what He is doing and will do through others among us. Uh, Today we have a group of retired faculty and employees uh, sitting right here in the central section. So I'd like to ask them to stand, and as they stand, would you thank them and give God praise for their years of service? You continue to be, for us, models of what we want to be. So thank you for not only what you have done, but your ongoing faithfulness to Christ and to the kingdom. I know some of you are more active than you've ever been for the Lord, and we praise God for you. The second moment of celebration that I want to remind you is an act of worship for us. Uh, Worshiping God for what he's doing and one among us is a celebration of Dr. Steve Lennox. You know that today and Friday he'll be sharing with us from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Dr. Lennox has served with us for just over two decades at Indiana Wesleyan University, and through that time, he has been exemplary in every way. His excellence in the classroom, his one-on-one advising and mentoring, his love for students, his collegiality with his colleagues and peers, his volunteering in the community with St. Martin's Community Center that we just heard about, his leadership among us is just stellar. He has served as a beloved biblical studies faculty member, He has led the School of Theology and Ministry, and he has been the Dean of the Chapel. It would be hard to celebrate something more than we get to celebrate today in Dr. Lennox. So we do send him off with a bit of sadness as he's going to be the newly inaugurated president at Kingswood University. But that's also, in our mind, a big kingdom win. For a university to have somebody with his character, scholarship, credibility, credentials, and competence as a leader really is a gift. So we want to celebrate what God is doing and has done among us in Dr. Steve Lennox today. So would you please, as he comes to the platform, give God thanks for who he is. Dr. Steve Lennox. Thank you. Thank you. I only have so much time. (laughs) Thank you very much. These have been 22 wonderful years for my family to be here. Uh, My wife works in the health center, as most of you know, as the nurse practitioner, so we have been uh, up to our eyeballs in college students for the last two decades, and it has been delightful, just delightful. We are so thrilled to contemplate what God is going to do in his church as you step into places of leadership and influence across this country and around the world, I'm excited to consider all the ways that God will use you that even go beyond your ability to comprehend. And so it's been a wonderful privilege, and I thank you for this opportunity to share with you on the Apostles' Creed. If you remember, we started several semesters ago at the beginning of the Creed talking about faith The idea that faith is not contrary to reason, faith is what keeps reason reasonable. 
And we said that our faith, the faith that we confess, is a faith in God, and we noted the qualities of God that the creed celebrates are God as Father and Almighty, and we noted the juxtaposition of those two terms. You don't ordinarily expect to see those two terms together. Ordinarily, to say that He's the Father speaks of His imminence, and Almighty speaks of His transcendence, and the creed rightly juxtaposes those two and said, you have to hold on to both of them. He is both with us and beyond us. And if you miss out on either one of those, you really miss out on the kind of complexity that Kim was talking about this morning in terms of the nature of God. The second paragraph in the Creed talks about Jesus, and it begins with His conception by the Spirit. And We talked about the virgin birth, how that's such a crucial doctrine. We have to hold on to that. It's through the virgin birth that God brings to us a Savior that can be a Savior for us. He has to be both fully human and both fully divine in order to accomplish His salvific role, and it is through the virgin birth that Christ comes to us just that way. And then we talked about Him being born of the Virgin Mary. We recognized in Mary a teenager who probably wouldn't be old enough to be a freshman here, a quality of faith, capacity of courage, a woman that God used in ways beyond our ability to really fathom and comprehend, a great example for us. And, and now we come to this section of the creed which deals with what we know as Christ's passion, His suffering, death, burial, descent to Hades, and resurrection. And we're going to cover all of that in two chapels. Today I want to focus on the phrases that you see up there, superimposed above a picture of the Vatican staircase. I'm struck by this aspect of the creed. It surprises me for a couple of reasons. One is it mentions Pontius Pilate. Now, there's only two humans mentioned in the creed, Mary and Pilate. Those aren't the two I would have included. I know Pilate's there in part to anchor this story of Christ historically. It allows us to know when Christ came, lived, died, suffered, was buried, resurrected. It allows us to anchor that, and I appreciate that. It's still a surprise to have him mentioned by name. The other surprise to me is the way the creed goes in just a few words from incredible heights relative to the nature of Christ to incredible depths. We go from Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, to suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And it reminds me of those roller coaster rides that take you way higher than you think you should safely go, and then crest and begin to descend at an angle you don't think you should be allowed to go until you hit the bottom and start back up again. This is the way the creed it makes me feel as I read about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, which places Christ really as equal to God. We talked about that. He is very God of very God. He is, he is the light that emanates from God. And we said in an earlier chapel, where do, you, where do you draw the line of distinction between the sun and the sunbeam? You can't. He is the exact representation of his being, Hebrews says. And yet it moves into the truth about the events that we celebrated and commemorated last week. Well, that part of the creed, that high to low, the juxtaposition of Christ's 
magnificence as equal to God with His suffering and death reminds me of this passage in Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I have it up here on the screen for us, and we can look at it together. So I want to spend our time this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the heights to the depths? Being in very nature God. Go back to that slide again, this, uh, 5 through 11. Being in very nature God, verse 6. There's the height. But look at verse 7. <clears throat> First part of verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. That phrase, made himself nothing, can be translated emptied himself. So you want to think of the incarnation as Christ emptying himself, making himself nothing. Now, what does he empty himself of? It is not his divine identity. He continues to be fully God as human. But it is emptying himself of his divine privileges, his divine prerogatives. As God, he has the privilege of being omnipresent everywhere at once. But when he incarnates himself, he empties himself of this divine privilege and has to be located, just as you and I do, in one place at one time. As God, he is omnipotent, but it appears that he limits himself. He could not do miracles in certain places because of the lack of faith. Suggests a limiting of his capacity to work miracles. He knows everything as God, and yet as a human being, he has to admit, I don't know when that's going to happen. That's what I mean by emptying himself. He continues to be God, but he empties himself of these divine privileges, these divine prerogatives that are his by right. But he sets them aside, not for his own sake, but for the sake of us. And so this staircase that we saw just a minute ago is a picture to me of what I see in the incarnation. And this staircase has several steps to it. When Christ empties himself, he empties himself of these divine prerogatives and becomes a human. 
He takes on the nature of a human being there in uh, verse 7, last part of verse 7, first part of verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. He becomes a human being. The Creed talks about this in terms of Christ being born of the Virgin Mary, but that triggers something. It tells us that Christ does not just become a human being. It tells us what kind of human being Christ becomes. It's there, verse 7, the very nature of a servant. Remember what we said about Mary? She was a peasant, woman, unmarried, from Nazareth. She was, as we told you last time, a nobody from nowhere. If you ask me what kind of human Jesus became, that's what kind of human Jesus chose. Of all the possible classes of humanity into which to be incarnated. Jesus chose to step down not just into humanity, but into the lowest social class in a backwater of the Roman Empire, in a town that had a reputation where people said, can anything good come from there? Jesus didn't just step down to be a king in a palace. He didn't just step down to be a wealthy individual living in luxury. When he stepped down, he stepped down to as low as you can go on the totem pole of humanity. Jesus stepped down to be the lowest of social classes, and it was his choice. The staircase continues because he steps down to suffering. He chooses to suffer. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And of course, we know that the cross was not all that happened. There was suffering that took place, and suffering of a kind that I think it's worth contemplating. There was a suffering that he experienced from his own disciples, who all fled. One betrayed, and one denied him. When Jesus stepped down, he stepped down into suffering knowing that that suffering involved betrayal and denial by those who had been his closest companions for three years. Think of that. And then there was the suffering that he experienced from the religious leaders. We understand that Jesus and the religious leaders didn't get along. But nevertheless, it must have been something for those who represented the leadership of the religion to which Jesus was a full-hearted adherent, for those individuals who stood at the pinnacle of the religion that Jesus claimed for his own and called him all kinds of nasty terms and basically eliminated him from their fellowship. And they were the ones that were responsible for his death. There was a suffering in that too. And there was the the suffering of the humiliation, crucifixion, did not take place with Jesus clothed, whatever you might see in the artwork. There was the suffering that was of a sexual nature, the stripping away of his robe and the exposure to any passerby. And then there was the physical suffering. But Jesus stepped down voluntarily into that suffering. 
And then he stepped down into the suffering of death. We don't have time to go into the agony of crucifixion. Needless to say, it is the worst form of death that could be invented because it doesn't kill before it tortures. In fact, it prolongs the eventual death so that the torture becomes extreme. Even the Roman Cicero referred to it as a cruel punishment, not fit for anyone who was a Roman citizen. And the form of death that took place was not death from bloodshed. It was death from suffocation because the only way to breathe was by pulling oneself up on those spikes through the wrists. But even that wasn't the worst part about the crucifixion. The worst part about the crucifixion for Jesus was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If God had only stood by his side at that moment, perhaps even the crucifixion would have been endurable. Knowing all this ahead of time, Jesus steps down to die. Now, the creed goes on to talk about Jesus being buried, and then it adds this phrase. I wish we could spend more time on it, but it talks about Jesus descending to the dead or descending to Hades is the way it has it in the Greek. And we don't know exactly what this means, but it's clear that Jesus' descent was one step beyond even the cross. There are three ways this phrase descended to the dead has been understood. One way is to describe it as Jesus dying and being buried. It puts an, it puts an underscore on the fact that this was the final end. It, it locates Jesus in the tomb as if this crucifixion accomplished its intended goal and Jesus really died. A second way this phrase descended to the dead has been understood is to emphasize, to underscore the suffering of Jesus' life and last week of his life. To emphasize the fact that when Jesus descended to this earth, he accepted all the suffering that we've just described and more, and he did so willingly. But there's a third way, and it actually is the oldest way of understanding this phrase, and that is sometime between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus took a trip. And the best picture that I can use to describe Jesus on this trip is Jesus as a Navy SEAL. Because what Jesus is said to have done in what is known as the harrowing of hell is to storm the battlements of the enemy and actually liberate those who were there and shouldn't have been. He rescues them by harrowing or destroying the power of the enemy to control these individuals. Now, I don't know. You, 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 you decide which one. If you want scriptural support for the last few, 1 Peter 3.18 to 4.6 is the passage that's usually used. But you can sort that out for yourself. But that, those are the options to that phrase, descended to the dead. My point today is this. Jesus came all the way down. Whatever the bottommost step is, Jesus put his foot on it. And he did that willingly. That was his choice. And he didn't do it for his own sake. He did it for our sake. That's the point I want you to get. Jesus came all the way down. Now we'll go back up the stairs on Friday. But while we're down here, 
let me just make two observations of a very practical nature. Because theology, and this has been theology, if it's anything, is practical. An impractical theology is a contradiction in terms. All theology has practical implications. Do you get it? So what are the practical implications of the fact that Jesus came all the way down? Well, I think there are two categories of, of uh, implications for us. The one is that we ought to be encouraged. Encourage one another with these words. Go back up to verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. So one of the things that this ought to do for us is to encourage us. And I think it can encourage us in four ways. Here's the first. Because Jesus came all the way down accepting humanity, accepting even the lowest social class of humanity. What this means is that Jesus ennobles humanity. Jesus makes humanity something valuable. Now, that seems like a no-brainer in our culture. Of all the cultures in the history of humanity, our culture has done the best at celebrating the nature of humanity as worthy of respect. And I think this is a great accomplishment. The problem with our culture and its celebration of humanity is when you actually press in to find the reasons why humanity is being celebrated as something significant, worthy of protection, why we even need to talk about human rights, when you start to ask the question why, there's an awful lot of stuttering going on, stammering, a lot of us and mm, because humanity is valuable, we just don't know why. Because if we're consistent and we take the prevailing mindset of our culture, humanity is nothing more than the lucky sludge that made it out of the bog. That's where we all began, if culture is right. We all began in a bog somewhere, but then some of us just kind of managed to get up out of that bog. And that's us. That's people. That's humans. So we're valuable, but only because we're lucky. That's not much of a reason to value humanity. If that's all humanity is, just the lucky sludge that made it out of the bog, then human rights don't really matter. And they can be violated at will. Would somebody please give me a good reason why humans matter? I'll give you one good reason why humans matter. Because Jesus came down. When Jesus became a human being, humanity mattered. He took on our flesh by his own choice. He chose to become human. That makes being human something special. And not because of how much money you make. Not because of what you can do. Not because of where you live. Not because of what you can contribute to society. Jesus ennobled the lowest rung of humanity, which makes every human being something special. You're here this morning, and some of you have a self-esteem 
that you wish could grow. You wish you could think something of yourself, but you can't do. That list is a lot longer than what you can do. And you're not from the right place. And you didn't go to the right school. And you don't wear the right clothes. And you don't drive the right cars. And you don't have the right family. And on and on the list goes for why you aren't the person you'd like to be. There's only one reason. He came down. And whoever you are, However you feel about yourself, whatever you identify yourself to be, Jesus made that something special when he came down. There's a second reason why this ought to encourage us. Because when Jesus came down and he became a human, even a human, lowest level of humanity, and then he suffered, and then he died. In that, Jesus brought about redemption from, from sin. Listen, listen to the way Peter describes it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20, verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Peter put it this way, by his stripes you are healed. Some of you are finding yourself burdened down with the guilt of sin. Some of you are finding yourself trapped by the control of sin. I've got good news for you. When Jesus came down, he came all the way down Sin no longer has control over us, not the guilt of sin, not the power of sin, not the stain of sin, not even the nature of sin, because he came all the way down. Here's a third bit of encouraging news. Because Jesus came all the way down, he made our suffering purposeful. The worst thing about suffering is not the suffering. It's the sense of isolation that it leaves us with. It's the hint of meaninglessness. Why did I have to go through this? And nobody's giving you that answer. And I'm not giving you that answer. Here is what I am giving you. The fact that Jesus came all the way down and chose to suffer means that your suffering and mine has a purpose. He's already been on that step. Listen to me. I know that suffering makes you feel like, what was the purpose of it? What's the good of that? But if God could take the suffering of Jesus and produce from it the reconciliation of humanity to himself, does that not demonstrate God's capacity to take anyone's suffering and turn it to good? Is your suffering greater than Christ's? If God can take the suffering of Christ and turn it to Good Friday, what can he do with your suffering? This is why Jesus had to suffer. He could have just come and been shot. He could have been one of the babies that was killed by Herod the Great. He would have died for our sins. Why does he need to suffer? He needs to suffer so that our suffering can be made purposeful for God's glory and our good. And here's the fourth thing that is good news. 
because Jesus came all the way down and took that step of death, when we face that step, we go where our older brother has already been. This is why we do not grieve as those without hope. It isn't just that we're going to get resurrected bodies. We will. But it's that as we pass through death, we are not the first ones there. There has been one who's gone ahead of us. So I think of those Coptic Christian martyrs beheaded by the hands of Isis. I don't know what was on their minds. I don't know what was on their minds as the blade began to sever the head from their neck. But one of the things that could have been on their mind is that their older brother had been there first. I don't know what those Kenyan Christians were thinking when those radicals came in and began to to kill the ones who were Christians, but I know what could have been on their minds. Our elder brother was here before us. Death for you and for me is way off in the future. The fact is, wherever it is for us, and none of us know, Jesus was already there. Here's the second set of implications. The first are this series of encouragement, and that is we are human beings ennobled that Christ took us up. Our sins are forgiven. Our suffering is made purposeful. And our death is no longer the source of fear it once was. But there's also this challenge The fact that Jesus came all the way down is a challenge to us. It's a challenge, first of all, to die to sin. Listen, if this was all made necessary because of sin, then what are you and I doing playing with sin? I was sitting on a porch in Mozambique, the missionary house, last May, and looking out onto the lawn, there was a bush there, and I noticed there was a a bird that was fluttering around the bush, and I thought that was strange. I watched for a few minutes. The gardener came out, he had a machete, and he inched carefully to the bush and then began to slash. Just, it was a very awkward slash, but I figured out he was just trying to stay as far as he could from whatever was in there and still kill it with his machete. And eventually he succeeded. And he tosses out onto the driveway a mamba that was a good three feet long. It was in two pieces, but when I put them together, they were about three feet together. Even the bird knew enough to stay away from that snake. And yet how many of us are cosseting a mamba? It's a little pornography. What's it going to hurt? We love each other. Why can't we? You can't play fast and loose with God. That is a serious, serious, dangerous situation. And it's nothing to play with. If it was sin that brought Jesus all the way down, my challenge is die to sin. Die to sin. Have nothing to do with it. My second challenge is how you die to sin, and that's to die to self. The reason we commit sin is because we've elevated self to a place that has no business being. The simple solution is to die to self, just the same way Jesus did. Look at the text. Paul lists a bunch of sin, but you notice how much of that sin that he describes arises from this sense of privileging self. 
the antidote to which is do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what it means to die to self, to stop putting yourself as the top of the list, the one whose needs get met before everybody else. Try putting somebody else's name at the top of that list. Which brings me back to Pilate and Mary. The only two names that make it to the creed other than Jesus are Pilate and Mary. The odd couple if there ever was one. But here you got Pilate. Roman governor. Powerful. Influential. Could have people killed whenever he wants to. Controls this territory as the Roman governor. Powerful empire that it is. But he's a coward. And he seeks self-preservation above everything else. And while we may pity Pilate, nobody names their children Pilate. And then there's Mary. Poor, unmarried, teenage, peasant, from nowhere, Mary. Guess who ends up with all the power? Not the Roman governor. But the little peasant teenager, listen to what she says in her Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The way up is down. The way to live is to die. That's what Jesus' suffering, death, burial, and descent teaches. Let's stand together and recite the creed, and as you do, let it encourage you and let it challenge you. Got it coming up there? There we are. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Gracious Father, Lord Christ, blessed Spirit, encourage us with the truth of your descent and challenge us to join you and follow in your footsteps. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.